Jeremiah. So, how many of you have uh, now succeeded in reading through Jeremiah 30 through 35? Many godly hands are going up. Right, as I see. Yes, good. <clears throat> um, we got through chapter 33, didn't we? So what we're going to do, we'll spend most of this evening looking at the first part of chapter 34 and then mulling over some of chapter 35 and then perhaps we'll be able to to move on a little bit. Um, and I might take you to Zephaniah. But before that, any questions or observations so far uh, as to where, uh, sorry, <laughs> what we've studied and uh, what you've read? Are you all following the material? Okay, yeah. Um, you know, from, from a personal point of view, I don't get it. I just, I'll, I'm going to, I am going to admit to you, I don't get it that we've got so few people in this class. I really don't. Um, the Word of God is the most important thing we have. It is. It's the most important thing we have. And for Christians not want to get in depth with it and study it, and I understand there's other things going on, but um, you know, you are what you love, <laughs> and it's it's really. I, I personally, I'm I'm overjoyed to be doing this class and so on. But just from a personal point of view, as far as a teacher, being a teacher and a pastor is concerned. Um, that saddens me that so few people uh, care enough about the Bible to do this. Um, there's uh, all kinds of good things that you can do, but you have to prioritize. <laughs> you know, and uh, at the end of the day, God is not going to be bothered about whether you got your kids to this sport or you know, whether you did this or do, did that, but he is going to be concerned about what you made of his word. What did you do with his word? So, um, anyway, I'm just saying that to give you a bit of an opportunity to ask a question or think of a question if you've got one. We still... No? Yes, Ken. The most. I'm asking in what priority you're, and it's not noted, but I mean, what mm -hmm. you consider in you know, in Jewish tradition, when I talk about Jewish tradition, I couldn't care less about the Talmud and all that stuff, okay? But, um, but in, uh, in Second Temple period, the Second Temple period is the period 
of Herod's temple was, Zerubbabel's temple, which was turned into Herod's temple, which was destroyed in AD 70. So, you know, approximately from, say, 350 through to 70 AD, 350 BC, 70 AD, although more, it's kind of 200 AD, 200 BC through to 70 AD. That second temple period is the most important period for studying Jewish backgrounds. Um, a lot of the stuff that we get, he says tangentially, uh, when, when we are introduced to, to Messianic Judaism and Jewish studies, it actually doesn't come from that period. It comes from much later. You know, the Talmud does, it wasn't written until 400 and 500 AD. Um, so a lot of those traditions are not the traditions of, of the New Testament. Um, but, to get back on point, Jeremiah seems to have been put at the head of the prophets, just like Psalms was put as the head of the wisdom books. Uh, Jeremiah was often put as the head of the prophets. And that might give us a little bit of an insight into a passage in Matthew's Gospel where it says it's that uh, you know, Jeremy, the prophet Jeremy or Jeremiah says, and it quotes something from Zechariah. And you think, well, hold on a minute. Doesn't Matthew even know that that's Zechariah? Well, if he's using, as the Jews often did, uh, that, uh, you know, the naming of a main book to stand for the rest of the prophets, then that would make sense. You see what he's doing. So Jeremiah, it seems, uh, was held in very high esteem in the Second Temple period. Um, what's the most important book? Well, The most important book in the Old Testament is Genesis. Um, because Genesis is the foundation for, for those crucial doctrines that everything else stands on. But prophetically, um, for my, uh, from my understanding or my formulation of uh, of these courses, I would say Jeremiah has been the most important formative influence for me. It doesn't provide, you know, some key information. I mean, Isaiah you've got to go to, especially for the salvific aspects and some of the aspects of the kingdom. Daniel is certainly extremely important when it comes to um, understanding certain end times things. And God's kind of program. Uh, Ezekiel, as we will see, uh, is really key to, to getting a, a proper handle on, um, on the, uh, the priestly covenant, particularly. Uh, so, but, but I would say Jeremiah is really key. And this, this chapter, chapter 34, although it might seem to be rather nondescript, the passage that we're going to read, um, it was a light bulb moment for me when I, when I read it. <laughs> so maybe it will be for you when, 
we've, uh, we've done tonight. Um, I've been doing this stuff for many years and I've written a lot of stuff and edited an awful lot of stuff and taught an awful lot of stuff. Um, I've written two little booklets that I've been too lazy to try and get published, but I'm trying to get one published right now. But I'm also writing a book, and my book uh, is called The Words of the Covenant. And um, I'll just leave it there, because I think in, in saying that, we'll, we'll, uh, you'll know how important this chapter is to me. <laughs> uh, I hope they're gonna, not going to make too much noise out there. Okay. All right. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him. Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. So God here is saying, look, it's over. This is what's going to happen. And you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. That's rather terrifying, since the Babylonians were not known for being friendly toward their enemies. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. So this is giving him an assurance. Now, this is Zedekiah is not a good guy. He's not a good king, but God is a gracious God. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem. When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left, against Lachish and Azekar, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. Okay, now there's your preamble. Now let's see what happens. What Zedekiah and the nobles do and then what God does. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them. So you understand what the liberty is about. I mean, he's going to go into more detail, but you understand what it is. That every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. There it is. There's the oath. So you know clearly what it is. As in all covenants, you have to know what the covenant's about. And I think you would all agree that that's a pretty good thing to make a covenant about. 
you've been erring, the, you know, been doing the wrong thing, the best time to do the right thing is now. Stop doing the wrong thing now and start doing the right thing now. Okay? Sometimes we have a problem with doing the right thing because we've been used to doing the wrong thing and we don't like the idea of changing because people will think we're odd or, um, or we'll think we're odd. And you know, we've got to get over that pride and actually change. But afterward, they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return, whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. They lied. Not only did they lie, they broke an oath before God. Now, by the way, as we'll see, this is part of uh, uh, Levitical law. This is part of of the, why well, say the wider Mosaic Covenant. So this is a big deal. They're making an oath before God about something that He's spoken clearly about. Therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, "Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel." I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of that land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him. And when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. This is in Exodus 21 and uh, I think Deuteronomy. But your fathers did not obey me, nor incline their ear. Now this was the word of God. And yet, um, the predecessors did not, this was a rule they didn't obey. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight. Every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbour. What does this show? This shows that God takes notice when we do right, even if we've been doing wrong for a long time. That should cheer us up a little bit. Yeah, if we've been messing up for a long time, either through ignorance, because that can be sinful, or just because we've been hanging around the wrong people, or we've got our own pride issues, or whatever it is. If we've been going the wrong way for a long for a long way, um, when we start to do the right thing, God takes notice. Um, that's good, isn't it? Because we we feel sometimes that we've been messing up so long. Maybe we've been enslaved by a sin, or maybe we've, you know, with me, it's indifference, the sin of indifference. And I've been, I felt indifferent for a, a long time about something, for example. Uh, something I know that God isn't indifferent to. Maybe I've been indifferent about my prayer life. Or maybe I've been indifferent about hallowing God's name. Um, indifferent about reading the Bible or whatever it might be. Yes, Evangelism or something. And I might think, well, look, if I start to do the right thing now, first of all, I don't know if I can keep it up because I, you know, I know me. And then secondly, I don't know if God will pay any attention anyway because 
he must be really disappointed in me. But God, you see, is not, he's not like us. We shouldn't think that he's thinking what we're thinking. Um, God notices when we do the right thing. Even if we do the right thing before feeling the right thing. Because it's the right thing, God notices. Do you see? So in various places in the prophets, I mean, they say, look, you know, uh, these shepherds, I think it's in Ezekiel, these shepherds, you know, if they had, even though I didn't send them, if they'd have taught my people and fed my people, they would have done what was right. Remember Paul in the book of Philippians, he says, some people preach Jesus out of envy and strife, (laughs) supposing to add to my bonds. My goodness, what a motive. But, you know, he would still rejoice if it was done, if the gospel was preached. I've got to admit, I'm not there. I'm not as large-hearted as that. Um, but that's what a, that's the humility of Christ coming through in the life of Paul. So, so God does take notice. And he says that you made a covenant, verse 15, before me in the house which is called by my name. You go into the house of God which is called by his name, which has no idols in there and so on, and you invoke the name of God, the character of God. You bring him into your oath, to your agreement as a witness Then you turned around and profaned my name. We don't read about them blaspheming God verbally. We don't read about any of that. They just went back on their word. But God, because he was brought in as a witness, and because this was something that was already in the word of God, by agreeing to do it, then not doing it, going about and doing the other thing because of their... um, you know, their pocketbook was being uh, harmed. God says, you are profaning my name. Ezekiel takes up that. You profane my name, we'll see. And he's very clear about how they did it. Every one of you brought back his male and female slaves, whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure, and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. Therefore, Thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, every one of his, to his brother and every one to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you. This is sarcasm. Says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence and to famine. That's, uh, you don't want to be freed to meet those three. And I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, 
and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And um, just to be a little bit graphic here, their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. They won't even be buried, which in uh, Jewish custom was about the worst fate. Jews even buried their enemies. So, not to be buried, just to be picked upon by the beasts of the field. This was a really awful thing to happen to them. All right. As you probably have guessed, verse 18 is very key here. This is where God tells you what he thinks about a covenant. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant and have not performed. Look at that word. Some of you may have a slightly different word, but you have not performed the words of the covenant which they made. So let's have a look at what God is saying here. So, the covenant that they made, God didn't ask them to make. Or they didn't have to make a covenant. I mean, God had made the covenant and said, are you going to do it? And they, well, their forebears said they would do it and then they, they didn't do it. But it was God's covenant. What made them make a covenant on top of it. What do you think? Excuse me? In a certain way, yes. Um, Remember the preamble. What's going on? Where are the Babylonians? Okay, so the Babylonians are, are there. Jeremiah's telling them that they will be taken. It looks pretty clear as though Jeremiah is uh, is speaking truth and um, their fate is, is just outside the walls that being the case then they get all religious just like our nation gets religious sometimes yes and they decide in their religiosity which is a form of pride but at least they you know there is a, some humility involved in that too Um, they decide to actually do something that is very meaningful. Uh, They decide to let the slaves go. Now, we're not told the backstory. The backstory could well be, look, uh, we'll probably need some friends here. And since, since we're outnumbered, and we'll be outnumbered in Babylon, it's good to have done something nice for the people so they'll think well of us when we're taken into captivity. That could have gone through their minds. But whatever it was, they did the right thing. Moreover, 
in going to God and making a covenant before God to do this, that brought everyone together into an agreement. Remember what a covenant is for? About something big. So they all agreed to it. And, and then they performed that, at least for a while. And then they decided, hold on a minute, who's going to do all the work? Uh, so they didn't want to do the work and they didn't want to pay people to do the work. So they added transgression onto their previous transgression by bringing these people back into bondage and also breaking an oath that they just made before God. First question. And we've got a bit of audience participation time here. First question. What does God think about people that break their oaths? He is not happy. He is not happy. He takes notice of it. He does not take it lightly. Okay. And he repeats the oath. Do you notice that? Back to them. And in his repetition of the oath, there's no change. There's no alteration. He takes them at their word. Right. They did start to perform the oath, didn't they? They did let them go, but then they took them back. So, they, with God, you can't even plead, yeah, well, we did it for a bit. You know, we did it for a while, and then it just, you know, financially, it just got a little bit difficult for us, and so we had to take them back. God doesn't accept that. Once you make a covenant to do something, you better do it. You better do it. No ifs, ands, or buts. No, you know, second guessing on this. The covenant is clear. You do it. You perform your oath. Um, Can you think of somebody in uh, the Old Testament who made a very, very stupid vow (laughs) and performed it? Jephthah. Remember Jephthah in the book of Judges? Um, He performed the vow because he'd made it to God. Now, whether you think he was dumb in doing that or not, the, the fact of the matter is, he, the Bible says he performed the vow. However much Old Testament, modern Old Testament scholars trying to get him off the hook, the Bible says he did it. So, God says you've got to perform your vows. Now, this means that when you make an, a covenant, you don't make a covenant about just anything. Covenants are the most serious kinds of pledges and agreements. You better be clear about what you are swearing to. You better be clear in your ability to do it. And also your conscientiousness in making sure that it's done. Another important term here, words. He says the words of the covenant. Now, you may have in your translations terms of the covenant. Any of you have terms of the covenant? Yes. Okay. 
Well, the terms are words. Okay. The terms are made up of words, <clears throat> as in any agreement. You, look, you say, what are the terms of this agreement and what are you looking for? The particular words that are used that give a, a meaning. God is concerned about the words that are chosen and that are forsworn. God is concerned about the words that go into those oaths. Choose them wisely. And then we have this word, of course. And this leads us on to um, God's reaction to the ceremonial aspect of the covenant here because this is a passage that reminds us of the second part of verse 18. It reminds us of another ceremony earlier on in the Bible. Can you identify what that ceremony is? When they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it. What does that remind you of? Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15 where God passed through the divided animals which, which Abraham had, had um, cut up. Remember? God in the guise of a lamp and a smoking um, kettle and so on passed through proclaiming the name of the Lord, proclaiming the words of the covenant. Um, there is not an awful lot of information about these kinds of covenants. You know, people, you, you find that some people say that this was the standard way of making a covenant. Well, if it was, then we don't have much evidence for it. But what's pretty clear is that this is a self-maledictory oath. In other words, the person who's going through the parts of the divided animal animals and um, is swearing to do something. That's the oath that's being taken. Okay? There may be other things, other words that are spoken to support that, but the oath is the key part of the covenant. That's what God holds you, you to. The one who goes through the middle of those divided animals is saying, if I don't perform the words of this oath, then let what has happened to these animals happen to me. Do you see? It's a self-maledictory oath. It's calling a curse down on yourself if you don't perform the, the oath that you're making. You only find it here in Jeremiah 34 and in um, Genesis 15 uh, there isn't a great deal of support for it in ancient Near Eastern documents and so on, the ones that we have, but it's fairly clear what's going on. Now, this brings up a very crucial question, surely. It's a simple question, but all of the most profound teachings of Scripture actually are born out of simple questions, as are most of the profound truths that you know that are in the Bible or in, in philosophy um, it is 
well, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Here we have God being very, very serious about people not fulfilling their covenants. Even those who make a similar pledge to him in Genesis 15. I mean, he's, he quotes the oath back to them. He's very clear. Um, he just doesn't take any excuse. He expects them to do exactly what they've said they will do. All right. If that's true, does God exempt himself from what he holds others to? That's a very simple question and it's one of those really simple questions that begs for the answer no, doesn't it? You see? Um, and we've got to be careful of those kinds of questions. Um, although um, the answer is correct, we have to be careful sometimes of, of that we examine some of those questions. Um, or some of those propositions. I'll give you an example and I'll get back to this. Have you ever heard people say that you can find Christ um, in every chapter or every verse of the Bible? You can find Christ everywhere in the Bible. Yes? Have you heard that? Okay. Well, if I say that to you, and if, especially if I say that uh, in some, with an authoritative and pious tone, uh, maybe I'll quote some authority as well, just to back it up. You're going to feel the pressure of saying, yeah, that's true. Do you see? Even though it's a bunch of rubbish. Okay? It's actually a load of rubbish. But you don't want to say it's a load of rubbish because you think God is kind of like that teacher. You know, he's looking over at you to see if you're impious or not or if you are dastardly enough to disagree with this pious statement. What are you saying about my... Are you saying my son is not in all of the Bible? You see? Sometimes there's pressure on us to agree to something that um, that isn't so, because it sounds pious. Yeah, and I'm just putting that in there because I don't want you to be dis- um, to uh, be um, what's the word tricked or fooled by me. I want you to to uh, look at this with your eyes open. Okay, and make your own decision. But as a matter of fact, it's complete nonsense. You cannot find Christ in an awful lot of the Bible and an awful lot of the Old Testament. He isn't there. The verses are talking about what the verses are talking about. You try and put Christ in there, that's not what the verses are talking about. That's you or somebody you're following. If God had wanted to put Christ in there, he could have put him in there. But he didn't. That's not the same, by the way, as saying 
that Jesus is not the atmosphere, or Christ is not the atmosphere of the whole Bible. He is. But you'll only see that if you do the kind of thing that we're doing here. Okay? You don't go for proof texts. What you do is you, you identify the different things that are spoken of Christ. You put them together and you see how necessary he is to everything. So going back to this passage in Jeremiah 34:18, does God hold himself exempt, excuse me, Turn that down. Uh, Does God hold himself exempt from uh, covenants and oaths which he holds others to? Is there a double standard in God? Just because he's God. I can can get pious with you again and... and, uh, intimidate you again. Well, God's God, isn't he? God can do anything he wants, can't he? Who are you? Misusing a verse in Romans 9. Who are you to speak against God? I'll tell you who I am. I'm nobody to speak against God, but I'm going to speak against somebody who's talking rubbish about God. There's a big difference between those two things. God does not have a double standard. And just because God is God, do you see? Just because he's God, he can't do whatever he wants. As far as what that means in that quotation, which means that God can be capricious and he doesn't have to give a reason for things. God will only do that which is in correspondence with his nature. He cannot deny himself. So when you you get these pious people that, again, they say, um, God can, uh, well, give you an example. God can damn some people and elect other people and he doesn't have to have a reason for it and so on. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. That goes against his nature. Do you see? I mean, you can stomp your feet, you can get all aerated and so on, you can quote whoever you want to quote. You're still talking rubbish. Because God is the way he's revealed himself and he will not deny himself. Do you see? I'm not denying that there is an election, by the way. All I'm saying is that what certain people say about it is nonsense. God is not like Allah. Allah can do anything he wants, and he does. Well, I mean, he doesn't exist, but... I mean, if he did exist, he can do anything he wants, okay? God can't. Or, let's put it the other way. Everything that God wants is consonant with his nature as revealed in the Scripture. Therefore, if you say, if you uh, um, predicate of God that just because he's God, just because he's sovereign, 
he can do anything he wants, you're not talking about the God of the Bible anymore. You're talking about a God of your invention. Because you think that might is right. But it isn't. Do you see what I mean? God's, God's sovereignty is informed by his other attributes. In fact, you might say that God's sovereignty is not, it's kind of a lordship attribute, as John Frame talks about, but it's not, um, it's not really one of the, the perfections of God, is it? Not like holiness and love and his goodness and his justice. You see, it's in a kind of a different category to that. And that means that whatever sovereignty is yielded by God is all, uh, wielded, sorry, by God, is always wielded by his love, his justice, his goodness, you see? It's, it's always controlled by his attributes. It's not just a attribute to be wielded like Thor's hammer. I'm enjoying going down these little trails tonight. I, I normally don't do this. but So, God doesn't like it when we don't perform our oaths. He expects us to perform them. And folks, here's the, the profound truth which will revolutionise the way that you read the Bible. God himself holds himself to the words of the covenants he makes. And he will not change them. Just because you think, in your understanding of the New Testament, that he has to because now the church is Israel. Or... There can't be two peoples of God. Or whatever excuse you may want to come up with. You know what? That is not... That, that's God's problem, not yours. Your job, my job, is simply to listen to God, try to understand it, and not change it, and not employ our reason to make God end up where he doesn't want to end up and where he said he's not going. If God holds himself to the words, words, folks, the words of the covenant oaths that he makes in the Noahic covenant, in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Davidic covenant, in the priestly covenant, in the new covenant, if he holds himself to those oaths, and he does, then the whole of human history will, will end up within the parameters of those words in those covenants. And if you have a theology of the Bible that flattens out those covenants, says, yeah, we'll take that bit, but we'll throw away that bit, we've no need for temple in the millennium so we'll throw that out and so on because we can't figure it out we know we've read the book of Hebrews and it doesn't go there anymore um, if you do that 
you are not going to end up in your interpretation of the Bible where God ends up. If you have problems, welcome to the club. So do I. So does everybody. But you'll have far fewer problems if you'll just take God at his word and try to figure out like Abraham did when he was offering up Isaac, and that didn't make sense to him either. Um, Well, all right, so I've got to do this. It doesn't make sense. So how does this, how can it work out? Do you see? What are the only possibilities here? That's how faith works, do you see? Faith reasons on the word of God. It doesn't ever stray from the word of God. So, um, in Ezekiel 17.15, we read this. It's a denunciation. It talks about Zedekiah again. He rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? Answer, no. No. God is serious about covenants and he's most serious about the ones he makes because what's he just said about his name here when they broke the words of the covenant what did they do to God's name they profaned it they blasphemed it well God is not going to profane his own name by breaking a covenant Ezekiel 17.15 Well, what that means is this. Let's diagram it. So, we have the Noahic Covenant. Okay? The Noahic Covenant's about what? No flood. You have the Abrahamic Covenant, which has different trajectories. Okay? About descendants... Uh, is that the right descendants about land and about the nations you have the priestly covenant which is about um, Phineas's descendants it's everlasting you have the Davidic covenant which is David's throne. We'll keep it with those. The Mosaic Covenant is what? It's a bilateral covenant and it is temporary, remember. If it wasn't temporary, we would not enter into the New Covenant and we need the New Covenant. So, look at these things. No flood, literal descendants, through this is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob here, land, specific land, then promises to the nations. By the way, I will just put this in, although it's not in the Old Testament, 
the church partakes of this part of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? Not these two. Phineas's descendants, this means that because it's an everlasting covenant and he's a high priest and has priests, Levites, in his line, they become the Zadokites, by the way. The Zadokites. Okay? An everlasting ministry. And then David's throne in Jerusalem, Israel, Zion, all that. If you have an eschatology, if you have an understanding of the Bible that doesn't include these things or that warps them and changes them and transforms them, you don't have a biblical theology. That sounds terribly bigoted, I know, but you don't. How, do, how on earth can I stand here and say that? I'm not the most brilliant guy in the world and there are certainly better and greater po- people than me that disagree with me. Um, how can I be so dogmatic about that? Maybe I'm wrong, okay? But I'm still going to be dogmatic about it because I really believe that, that this is the case. How can I do it? Because of this. Because of the words of the covenant. God holds himself to the words of the covenants he makes. You might be able to try to invent ways of getting out of this so that you can end up with the church getting everything and spiritualizing the stuff that you don't like. Giving all the curses back to, to Israel. That's what some people do. It's been very popular in church history to do that kind of stuff. Um, and you do that by saying that, yeah, but, but there are conditions. There are conditions to the Abrahamic covenant. And there's conditions to the priestly covenant and Davidic covenant. You see, this is what they do. And the conditions were broken. Therefore, God doesn't have to hold himself to these covenants. There's one very big problem with that. These covenants, um, the oaths to the covenants were only made by one person. Therefore, he's the only one that has to perform them. You don't have to perform an oath that you didn't take. There may be a condition that is linked to the covenant that you may have to do, like circumcision, for example, in the Abrahamic covenant. Yes? But that's not in the oath. The oath is in Genesis 15. Circumcision is in Genesis 17. So you've got to focus on the oath that was made. And when you look at the oath, that's God alone. Where's Abraham when the oath is made in Genesis 15? What's he doing? He's sleeping. Who put him to sleep? God. If God had wanted him to enter into the covenant and all the conditions, he should have kept him awake. He deliberately put him to sleep. Why? So that replacement theologians in the 21st century would know that Abraham didn't enter into the oaths of the covenant. That's why. Um, This is really key, really important, and um, so much stems from it. So, in order to drive this home, and I think this is this is the way that the book is, is arranged, there is a uh, 
picture illustration here, a lesson, object lesson in chapter 35. This is about the Rechabites. you remember this chapter about the Rechabites? Does anyone of you not know about the Rechabites? <laughs> so, let's, let's look into these. I won't read the whole thing. But uh, chapter 35, the word which came to the Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. See, this is going back in time, you see. This is before chapter 30 through 34. Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them and bring them into the house of the Lord and into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. Wine to drink. Then I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, his, his brothers and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites, and I brought them into the house of the Lord and into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalem, the keeper of the door. Why is he going into all of that detail? Because he wanted people to know that he really did this. And he had witnesses. Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups and said to them, drink wine. That's simple enough. But they said, we will drink no wine. But Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons, forever. And he continues. Verse 8, thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Jacob, our father, in order that he charged us to drink no wine all our days. Um, verse 12, then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words? Says the Lord. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. And he continues that. Verse 16, Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. Verse 19, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. There's no oath there, but there is a promise. You say, well, how, I mean, we don't even know where the Rechabites are. So how can this come true? Well, because God does. And, also because of God's timeline, which we will look into, especially when we look into Daniel. So, what's the object lesson here? Why on earth did all, why all this palaver about bringing the Rechabites into the house of God, making all this, putting all this wine in front of them, just so the Rechabites could tell him what he already knew? We're not going to do it. Because um, God speaks words. He speaks commands. But they don't take them seriously. 
God is not obeyed. At a basic level, at the the most fundamental level, this has to do with uh, the moral aspects of the Mosaic law. At another level, thematically, following after chapters 30 through 34, this is very interesting. Because, uh, again, we have a situation where God is highlighting the words to be obeyed or to be understood and believed. Do you see that? That's, so in a sense, what chapter 35 does is reinforce what we've already learned in chapter 34 and chapter 33, where God talks about if I, you can break my covenants with day and night and all of this. Do you see how one thing compounds the, 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 the other thing, the other lesson? More and more, it is pay attention to the words and believe them. Believe them. So that's why I had you read chapter 35. All right. Any questions before we move on? All right, let's go to Ezekiel. Actually, no. I'm going to leave Ezekiel. Uh, Let's go to Zephaniah. One of the only three chapters. One of the minor prophets. Priestly family. I'm not going to do the whole book. Okay, chapter 3 of Zephaniah. Oh no, we did this, didn't we? We did this. Yes? Alright, we don't need to do this. Okay, we don't need to do this. So we will do Ezekiel. Sorry. The, The lesson that I've been driving home in this particular lesson, this particular part of the course, is uh, that the covenants of God are inviolate. They, they cannot be contradicted. They cannot be changed. Um, oh, I was going to complete this. If we say that um, the consummation, uh, let's see, we'll just do it this way. Okay, the kingdom, Christ's second coming and the kingdom and all of that wonderful stuff ahead. This stuff moves unalterably to the terminus. You cannot, just because the church comes in later on, you can't change and redirect any of this stuff. Which means that you've got to have a doctrine of the church that accommodates this. You cannot try to erase any of this stuff just because the church doesn't seem to fit in. 
That's the challenge of the next course, by the way, the, the third part of this, um, this study, is reading the New Testament in such a way as to not let it violate any of this. And you'll see that when you do it, you can do it. You can do it. Now, last week, when we looked at chapter uh, 31 and chapter 33 of Jeremiah, remember we looked at the New Covenant, finally named the New Covenant. It had been spoken of by Isaiah and Moses and others, but now it's named. uh, It has to do with salvation. It has to do with the transformation of the heart, remember? Um, There are some very interesting uh, connections that we can draw here. In fact, uh, what we'll do is we'll cheat a little bit and we'll go to Ezekiel 30, what should we go to? 36 and 37. And we will uh, we'll ask a question. Because there is still something that's absolutely essential that's missing from this diagram. Or, to put it another way, there is something that gets in the way of fulfillment of this stuff. Yeah, several of you kind of furrowed your brows there when I said that. Okay, but it's not a big mystery, folks. Okay? If I had a red pen, I'd write in red pen this word. Okay. So, Ezekiel, (coughs) you're all ahead of me. We'll go back to these chapters, but um, chapter 36, and we will start in verse 21. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. His, if you like, his reputation. His reputation. Which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. When I am hallowed, or sanctified, set apart in you before their eyes. Well, hold on a minute. He's just been saying that they profaned his name. How on earth can they be hallowed? When, 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 uh, sorry, when will they hallow God's name? If they're profaning it now. That's an important question, isn't it? For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. We saw this with Jeremiah, this ingathering. Then, then, once they've been brought back, I will sprinkle clean water on you 
and you will be clean. Do you want to know, that is the prime proof text for baby sprinkling right there. Sorry? Infant baptism, yes. It actually, it, it says, uh, sometimes it says sprinkle, but the, the Hebrew term also has this idea of sloshing. <laughs> actually throwing water out. Um, but this is clearly a figure of speech. It's, it's so ironic. It's so ironic that some Christians spiritualize what God means literally and take literally what he means figuratively. Here they're taking literally what he means figuratively. And he explains what he means by this. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Which they profaned the name of God with, you see. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Which covenant's that? New covenant. Well done, Karen. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. God has to do that because if he leaves it up to us to obey and he leaves it up to us to transform ourselves, we go to hell. We cannot do it. Israel couldn't do it. We can't do it. God has to do it. If God is going to make good on his covenants, he's going to have to deal with this. And if he waits around for us to deal with it, then we'd have blown ourselves up before there's any chance of realisation of that. It's not going to happen. So the question comes forward, does this mean that God, knowing that we didn't have the power to um, qualify ourselves to receive the wonderful blessings that he's promised, promised them anyway, knowing he didn't have to deliver, or is he a better God than that and actually promised because he intends to also provide the means, the way for fulfilment to take place? Is he going to be the one that provides the cleansing from sin? Is he going to be the one that qualifies us or Israel to receive this? Do you see? And just saying Israel were a... Were a um, backstabbing, you know, um, profane bunch of unbelievers. Well, surprise, surprise. Welcome to the human race. So are we. There's no change. There's no difference with that. Okay? But for the grace of God. It's God. It's not us. Christianity 101, that isn't it? So pointing fingers at Israel and say, well, they couldn't keep it and they backslid and they got, well, so what? So would you be? Yeah, you'd be among them too. So we're just stating the obvious when we say that, which means that, that we have to look for God to do something about it, just as God has done something about our plight as sinners.
And so he says he's going to here. I'm going to uh, put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the sense of possessing and staying in the, in the land which I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And again, that is covenant language. Um, the land is pretty important to Ezekiel. Seems to be pretty important to God. And it seems to be in his plans when he, he is hallowed in the eyes of Israel. Is God hallowed in the eyes of Israel now? No. Was he in Jesus' time? Well, since they crucified his son, probably not. No. So when? Chapter 37. You know about the Valley of Dry Bones, and we'll go back to that at some point. But look at um, at verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, shall uh, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. He keeps repeating graves, doesn't he? I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and because God means what he says and there's always a correspondence between what God says and what he does and performed it, says the Lord. Right, now... Here's, uh, you need to put your, look at this, and you need to put your thinking caps on. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it, for the, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Now, What's that talking about? Okay, here's the question. Has God done with Israel? Has God done with the northern tribes? How do you know? Because of this trick that Ezekiel's performing. You see? So anybody who says that the northern tribes have gone off into captivity in Assyria and we don't know where they are, well, you might not know where they are, but guess what? God does. And since Ezekiel has been given this sign to give to Israel, then I guess that's a done deal, isn't it? Unless you don't believe what God says. Piously, of course. Sorry, I, 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 I hope my sarcasm doesn't put you off too much. I am English, 
And I, I sometimes do get a little sarcastic, but don't let it put you off. Um, Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Okay. <laughs> um, what's that got to do with? What covenant's that got to do with? Abrahamic. Abrahamic. Okay. See if you can call these out as we read down. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be a king over them. Davidic. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. New covenant, very good. David, my servant, shall be king over them. Davidic, again. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land which I gave to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever, which is Davidic. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Priestly covenant, yes. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. The nations. What covenant's that? Abrahamic again, yes. When my sanctuary, priestly, is in their midst forevermore, they shall know. Remember that uh, in is Exodus 19, Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. Do you remember? And a light to the nations. Well, here they are. They're going to be. They're going to be a magnet to the nations. You see, God... When he says, I'm going to do this, even though um, it gets messed up, his plans are his plans. They're good plans. So, even though it appears as though they're all botched for a while because of the human element, God will just do it another way. But they were good plans to start with and they continue to be good plans. So, guess what? They're going to pop up again later on. So, what we have here is the covenants. Uh, the, the Noahic isn't in this because the, the land critters aren't involved in it and the produce of the land aren't mentioned. Uh, but they are later on in Ezekiel. But we have these covenants that are mentioned sometimes several times. When... Israel will hallow the name of God. And the only way they're going to hallow the name of God is when they get a new heart. But none of these covenants have within them that provision. Which means none of these covenants themselves can get past this. Which means they can't be fulfilled. Until. Until. 
sin is done away with under the auspices of the new covenant. Now, covenant, uh, covenant, okay. Now, once they are cleansed, once they are obedient, what gets in the way of the fulfilment of these covenants? And since they are unilateral covenant oaths, God himself entering into those oaths, where does the responsibility lie to make good on the words of these covenants? With God. And where does the ability lie? With God. And he doesn't have to get together with the conveners of the Westminster Assembly to figure out how he's going to do it. As godly as those men were. What our job is, is to believe that God has actually built into this system uh, a way of getting what he wants out of it. This is it. Okay, last thing. I told you last week to read Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. So who did that? Okay, good, all of you. I didn't see you two at the back. But, uh, all right, good. Let's have a look at those quickly because there's something about the new covenant which is really interesting. Go to Isaiah 42 first. We're in here the servant songs of Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Uh, We've already had somebody like this in chapter 11 and so on mentioned. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. As smoking flax, he will not quench. That's a wonderful verse. Uh, Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, wrote a wonderful book on those uh, passages. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. Um, justice is the chief virtue. Uh, you can love, you can um, be courageous, and all of the other things, faithful, whatever. But if you do not do justly, all of these other qualities go astray. Justice, fairness, uh, rectitude, they bring these things to heal. They make them truly noble. Yes? Justice. So, thus says the the God of the Lord, that says God the Lord, excuse me, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, 
and spirit to those who walk on it. This is, this is, he's the creator. Now, the creator had a project that I hope you haven't forgotten about. What I call the creation project, yes? I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Who was that spoken about? Who's that applied to in the Gospels? Here's a person who is a servant, who has the spirit and will rule in justice, who God says, I will make you a covenant. Isn't that what it says? I will make you a covenant. Go to chapter 49. Similar wording. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Does that remind you of something? Like a revelation, maybe? In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me, and he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel. Now, notice that, we'll come back to it. In whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring back Jacob to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, the preserved ones being the remnant. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's just uh, halt there for a second. Uh, We'll notice a couple of things. First of all, look at the Abrahamic covenant here. Okay, nations mentioned here. Okay, Israel mentioned here. And of course the land is involved in this. Uh, In Included in the descendants, in the seed, in um, Genesis 22:18 and some other places, there is a, a seed, a descendant, okay, who is Christ. Do you see that? And it's this descendant that ties these together, right here. He doesn't just bring back the lost ones of Israel. He also goes out to the nations to get them too. Because that's part of the Abrahamic covenant. 
But it's not done in this abstract manner. It's done personally by this individual. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because the Lord is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth, and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. And it continues. Um, in verse 16, there is this m- uh, marvelous figure of speech spoken to Israel. We'll come back to it. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. I don't like tattoos. I think they're dumb. But I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. I mean, that's, that's God saying that um, Israel, you know, I'm not going to forget about you. I mean, he didn't do that in the Noahic Covenant. He put a rainbow up there to look at. But here he's got Israel on the palms of his hands. We believe the Noahic Covenant. He's not going to bring a flood back. Why don't we believe the fact that God is going to bring Israel back and save Israel? I'm going to give you as a covenant to the people. Here again, this is a servant song. It's talking about Christ. Although, hold on a minute, it did say, you are my servant, O Israel, didn't it? Verse 3. But then it went on to say something weird because it said, uh, the servant is going to raise up and restore the preserved ones of Israel. Well, how can Israel preserve Israel? Surely they're the ones who need to be raised up. Well, it's probable here that that Messiah, Christ, is being referred to as Israel, the great representative Israelite, yes? In verse 3. And then the nation, the tribes, whom he's going to redeem, will be redeemed through him. So Israel, in a sense, starts again with Christ. Do you see that? As an Israelite. Now, our covenant theologian friends uh, do have it right when they say that Jesus is the true Israel. In the sense that uh, the the remnant of Israel, the new Israel, the, the eschatological Israel starts with Christ, the resurrected Lord. Where they're completely, utterly wrong is that they say uh, all of the fulfilments of the covenants come true on Christ and not on Israel, the nation, the tribes. They're completely wrong there. They've got their theology wrong because of not paying attention to verses like this. Um, but here, and this is where we'll finish it, twice, chapter 42, chapter 49, the servant, who is Messiah, is called a covenant. 
and notice what his role is. What is his job? Redemption. Redemption, salvation. What is the covenant that deals with salvation? The new covenant. Christ is a covenant. What covenant is he? I'm, I'm leading you here. And I know I'm leading you. So you, if you can just say it and then disagree with me. Just humor me. Um, he's the new covenant. Last thought, kind of a meditation for you. Leaping ahead. Just before the uh, Gethsemane, just before the crucifixion, all happened rapidly, one thing after another. Jesus paused in the upper room and he broke bread and he gave it to the disciples. He said, uh, this is my body that is broken for you. Um, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and uh, he said, this is my blood. What was that? He did say that, didn't he? He did say that. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is given for you. Who's, whose blood was it that made the covenant? His. Whose body was offered? His. Who's the, according to the book of Hebrews, the mediator of the new covenant? He is. And there's a bit more that we can add to this. Um, when we preach the new covenant, who do we preach about? Jesus. Although we have to, I know there's more work to do on the new covenant because there's a lot of uh, theology that's gone different ways in trying to explain it. He is the new covenant. Because Jesus, and again, if you want to disagree with me on this, you can. Since there's, you know, I have no power over your relationship with God or the Bible. If you want to disagree and think I'm wrong, it's between you and God. Okay. Um, but um, look at this. Okay, look at this before you throw it to the winds, because it doesn't agree with what you've heard before. Jesus is not in every verse of the Bible but he's absolutely front and centre to the creation project. Nothing gets by Jesus. Nothing gets here without passing through him. There is no transformation involved in any of these covenants. No transformation of ourselves. No transformation of Israel. No land to Israel. No... uh, um, revivification of, uh, of the land and the, the trees and the flowers and the, the birds and the, uh, the beasts of the field. No change, no beautification, um, no anything in the eschaton that isn't there by dint of going through the new covenant, who is Jesus. Not some abstract covenant, but a person, the God-man, who gave himself. He became the covenant animal, as it were. Look in Hebrews at, at that passage. Okay, 
He gave himself. He made the covenant himself. Do you see? Um, well, we'll leave it there, but um, this is why when you get this stuff together, it, it glorifies Jesus. It glorifies God. Do you see? And it ties everything together and Jesus gets the glory. That's much better than trying to read him into a passage where you can't find him for love and money. I mean, it's here, it doesn't matter if you can't find him in this chapter. It doesn't matter if, if, if you can't find him over here and so on. It doesn't matter because in the big scheme of things, he's everywhere. It's all to do with him. And that's much better.